Thank you, Phil. Can we pray for a moment? Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Lord, it's easy to sing it, but it's uh, alarming to face it. But we do mean it. And we pray that you would indeed reveal your glory to us this morning. That Jesus Christ may have the full due of obedience and love and attention from us. Amen. Well, do please uh, keep that reading in front of you. Mark uh, chapter 9. Uh, We had a series a while ago now on Mark chapters 1 through to 8, and that finishes uh, with Peter's confession of the Christ. You can see it there in uh, verse 29 of uh, chapter 8. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. It's just the Greek word for Messiah. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the one expected. Jesus immediately after that predicts his death. And now as we go into chapter 9, it's almost as though the gospel begins all over again. And we have the transfiguration, as we call it. It's quite handy that we've got that word, uh, because I wonder what on earth we would call it if we didn't have that word to call it by. Uh, It's it's the oddest of events that takes place in Jesus' ministry. Elijah and Moses, prophets of the Old Testament, appear with him. And why does it that Peter says, uh, let us put up three, um, uh, they're, they're like sort of booths, shade shelters for you? Well, of course, partly it's because Mark wants us to get the usual point that the Uh, disciples around Jesus are quite often a bit dim. Um, But more importantly, it's because he wants us to understand that this was not a vision in the sense of like a dream or a a hallucination. These weren't sort of glowing figures that you kind of knew would fade away. Whatever happened that day, it was real and solid enough in front of them that Peter could say, these people are going to need shelters from the burning sun. They're obviously going to be here for a while. They're going to have a conflag. So they're going to need some shelter. And Peter clearly had in his head, and therefore Mark invites us to have in our head, that this was more than just a, a dream, a kind of like a picture that would fade. Yes, it does say suddenly they, would, they disappeared, but it's meant to come as a shock Uh, It was entirely reasonable for Peter to suppose, well, clearly you're going to be here for days. I mean, you've you've got, you know, several hundred years to catch up on. So let's build you a shelter. It was meant to be thought of as real. It's more than a vision. And we can go back to the beginning of uh, Mark's Gospel and see the way that this is intended to... He structures it almost like a a part two. We've had the great confession of you are the Messiah, so we go into part two with that kind of echoing in our heads. But Jesus, the first thing that happens to Jesus in Mark's Gospel is that he is baptized. And now he is transfigured. At the end of his baptism, uh, we get the words, to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. 
Now we get, this is my son, whom I love. The parallel is there. There are, uh, the first thing that happens after the baptism, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, is that we read, after John was put in prison, Jesus, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We get the little note that John had been put in prison. Here, we get reminders of Elijah, and the later on in the, the, the little bit we heard, we're going to get re- we heard reminders that the, by the time of Jesus, the story of Elijah had been elaborated somewhat to focus on his own suffering. It was distinctive for the prophet uh, Elijah to suffer. And by then, he'd become the, the kind of uh, forerunner figure that had been prophesied. So, uh, sorry, John had become the forerunner figure prophesied. So Elijah was supposed to prepare for, uh, prepare God's people for the Messiah to return. And there was the question, well, what was John's role? And that echo is going on. John the Baptist, Elijah. We'll come back to more uh, of that later. But if you want to look for a further parallel, you could look to another prophet. Uh, the, the vision of Isaiah uh, in the temple in chapter 6 is of one who just fills his head with brightness. And in the beginning of Mark's gospel, we hear words from Isaiah. You could argue here that this is the experience of Isaiah. Because again, there is this uh, uh, lightning quality uh, Mark, um, if Mark had been writing uh, today, he might perhaps have said, uh, he led them up a high mountain where uh, they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than Purcell could get them. That, that's actually exactly pretty much what he says. It's, it's, it's whiter than any, any system of cleaning we know could get them. It's very pedestrian and mundane. If you were trying to, to fantasize and write up a story, you wouldn't kind of reach for that incredibly dull language. But that's what he says. He's, he's reaching for language that goes beyond language, just as Isaiah did in his day. It's a parallel. This is how things start off in Mark chapter 1. This is how things restart in chapter 9, after we know that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, we get then to uh, verse 7. A voice came from the cloud, this is my son. Well, the story could have stopped there. It would have made a tremendous amount of sense to us if it had stopped there. Because we would know, okay, he's the Messiah. Yes, we remember that from chapter 8, verse 29. Ah, now now we know from chapter 9 and verse 7, he's uh, the son of God as well. And then the story could unroll and we would go into the rest of the story with all of that. But isn't it interesting, therefore, that if it could have stopped there, but it doesn't, and it says, whom I love, we're being told something in a way that is so core to the underlying part of the story. It's not core to the the narrative, to what actually is going to happen. So we really need to notice that. This is my son, whom I love. It's the usual word in the New Testament for love, the, the, the beloved one. And it's not just whom I love as I might love anyone else. The word 
um, is the one beloved. The one. It's kind of taking Jesus and, and considering him and saying this one. Look, look at this one. There, there may be lots that I love, but I want you to look at this one whom I love. This is the one, my beloved, singled out, chosen, boosted. There's a wonderful word for love in the Old Testament, and it often transfers into this uh, Greek word in the New Testament. The word is chesed, and it means, if it's applied to an individual, it would mean if, if I approach someone with chesed, it would mean that this is the one to whom I am completely faithful. There is a, bar, a bond between us that is unshakable, unbreakable, and the, the, it's as though the gaze between us is never broken. This is my son, whom I love, whom I uphold before you. This is the beloved. I, I look on him constantly. My eyes are never off him. I am bound to him in faithfulness and covenant love. Natalie and I were uh, on a train journey not very long ago, uh, and it went through Cambridge. And we went to the, uh, there's, a, there's a tiny little, some of you may know it, there's a tiny little coffee lounge at the end of Cambridge Station near the Norwich train. We went in, and at a the table there was a father and a son. And uh, I noticed the son was kind of in his chair, uh, um, sitting at a chair uh, in a corner, and he was running his fingers up the big illustration that there was on the wall beside him. And why was the son kind of doing that? Well, because his father had his eyes on his iPad. He was sitting, doing, I don't know, work, I don't know whether he was doing work, playing game, I've no idea. I'm not in a position to judge. But there was this gulf between them across the table. The son was as far away from the father as he could be in the space available, and the father was completely preoccupied. It is the exact opposite of what whom I love means. God the Father never takes his attention off the one he loves. Now, of course, we know the mystery of Jesus is that he takes our place and we take his. He takes our place on the cross of judgment and punishment and pays the price for our sin in order that we may take the place of the Son, the Beloved, in the Father's attention. There will be a sense for you of life returning to normal after Christmas and New Year, as it is for all of us. And I'm not here to commend New Year's resolutions, but imagine what it would be like if we went, in, we went through our year knowing that there is no moment when the Father's attention is not on us to declare us the ones whom he loves. Well, it could stop there too, couldn't it? This is my son whom I love. And we would go into the rest of the gospel knowing, yes, he's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He is beloved and there's something there to pay attention to. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, listen to him. That seems to me extraordinary. Would you expect that if you wanted to single someone out and you said, see that one over there, that's 
That's my son, whom I love. Isn't he fantastic? Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? I just want you to notice and pay uh, and, and just look. But God doesn't do that. He says, now listen. Listen to him because I love him. He is unbreakably attached to my will and purpose. He's my son. Pay attention to him. Because, of course, actually, that's what God the Father is doing. That's what it means for God the Father to say to God the Son, you're the beloved. I am endlessly paying attention to you, and I want them to pay attention to you too. So, guys, listen to him. Well, then it's all over, suddenly. When they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And they come down the mountain, and Jesus uh, gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen, and that the Son of Man, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead mean, and well they might. First notice that, Jesus has, uh, that they've heard this voice say, Son of God. Jesus immediately says, Son of Man. It's just a word for another human, for a human being. That's all it means in the language that Jesus would have been speaking. So Mark is inviting us, and I guess God is inviting us, to, to, to hold in our heads what we could never really hold in our heads, that this is the Son of God and also a perfectly regular human being who is being singled out as the, the human being, the Son of Man. Uh, but he's going to suffer. And he's going to rise from the dead. And of course they would discuss, discuss that. Because for them, as good Jews of the time, they would know that there would come a day when the resurrection would happen and it would be everyone all at once. The notion that there would still be someone around to talk about an individual who had risen from the dead was completely outside their frame of reference. They wouldn't have had a clue what that could have meant. But Jesus is affirming once again that he is going to suffer. Three times in very short succession in these chapters, we get suffer, 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 die, die, die. Rise, rise, rise. The Son of God will suffer, and the Son of Man, Son of Man will suffer, and the Son of Man will be raised. And he goes on. In language that picks up the expectation of his time, so it's not the easiest language for us to follow because of this business of Elijah. The calling on Jesus is to be the one who follows Elijah. Elijah, John the Baptist, has ushered in this time. But Jesus is the one who stands at the center of the time, the messianic age. He is the Messiah at the center of the messianic age, the one who's been ushered in by Elijah, by John. Uh, To be sure, says Jesus 12, Elijah does come first and restores all things. There's a little bit in the one of the apocryphal books that we don't read, but you could go and look it up if you want to. I think it's in chapter 48 of Ben Sirach that says that what Elijah will do is, is end the divisions within Israel. 
there will be a turning of fathers to sons. The sins that divide Israel will be overcome. You think of the ministry of John the Baptist telling people not to abuse each other, but to, to, to be restored and reconciled. That's the ministry of Elijah. That's what restoring all things looks like. It it may resolve some of the challenges between people, but it doesn't resolve the challenge between me and God. So there is more to do. It's not Elijah ushers in this age, but it is the Messiah who is going to reconcile people to their God. Um, How that will happen, we will hear more of as we go through uh, chapter 9 and 10, particularly. But we can come away from this passage knowing that there is the Son of God here, So there is glory. There is the Son of Man, the the human being here. So there is suffering. And this is who this man is. He is the Son of God. He is the one distinctive human being. He is the one who can be glorified better than Purcell can do it. But he is the one who is going to suffer and die. And yes, be raised. And what's that about? We don't know yet, but we're going to find out. To this one then. Listen. Well, how? What do we listen to? And we're drawing close to the end now. Chapter 11 begins a whole new section. Uh, It's a different location. There are different themes opening up. So it seemed to me reasonable to say, well, at least, what is it that Jesus is involved in after the transfiguration, between Uh, the transfiguration and the end of chapter 10. What is it that we would listen to if we were listening to Jesus there? Well, so just follow me quickly, if you would. The whole story through from verse 14 through to verse 32. You may be familiar with it. At the bottom of the uh, the column there in uh, uh, verse 24, I think, if my eyes don't deceive me, Immediately the father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus is acting out a story that is intended to make us, then, them, believe, stand on faith and do things that are unusual. There is a demand for belief, to see miracles. Verses 33 through to 37. There's been a big discussion between them about who's the greatest, and Jesus takes a child and says, no, no, uh, this is about humility and service. If anyone wants to be first, you must be the very last and the servant of all. Go over the page to verses 38 through uh, to 50. Uh, And just there, there is this radical life being lived out. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will not lose his reward. Uh, But for you, you better watch out that you don't put any stumbling blocks in anyone's way. There is to be a kindness to others and an utter ruthlessness to ourselves. So just in those three, there's, a, there's, there's more. There's radical social uh, uh, 
stuff coming up. But sorry, I, I said earlier that it starts a new chapter, a new section in chapter 11. I should have said a new se- section in chapter 10, because Jesus then leaves that place and goes to Judea and across the Jordan. But just in, in, verse, in chapter 9, listening to Jesus would mean taking on a capacity for trust that sees miracle happen in a way that I don't live. It means taking on a willingness to serve out of humility, the humble place of a child that I struggle to occupy. Listening to Jesus means being radically kind to others in the smallest detail and utterly ruthless with myself in a way that I don't live out. And I guess the same must be true for you. And maybe it is because it's the new year, still feels that kind of sense to it. That this comes to me as saying, this is who this is. Now listen to him. And it makes me want to go through my day, and yes, my year and my life, with this kind of radical commitment to one who, whom the Father never takes his eye off. One who is so connected to the life of God. that there is a kind of divine heartbeat here to say this is the kind of belief that we're looking for. This is the kind of humility that we're looking for. This is the kind of kindness and ruthlessness that we're looking for. And I pray, God, that I may know a life that springs from that listening. Jesus is reshaping the world It's a place, this new world, where Elijah and Moses can come and go as they please. And Jesus is inviting us to reshape our world in lives of radical obedience because we listen to him. Can we pray together? Lord God, this story happens up a mountain and real life resumes as they come down the mountain. And we live in that real life. Very rarely do we have the mountaintop experiences. So we pray all the more that by the power of your Spirit you would give us the grace to listen to attend, to pay the deepest attention to the one to whom you pay deepest attention because he is the beloved from all eternity, your son. And may we live lives that show we have listened. Amen.